Hello, you're listening to Golden Grenades, a weekly podcast about birds, what they mean to those of us who worship them, and the trivial matter of the end of the world. My name is Kit, aka that doofus yellow birder off Twitter, and each week I am joined by a special guest who has the unenviable task of choosing five, and only five, species of bird to survive an environmental apocalypse with them. They must also then choose one of those five birds to be their champion and have a best bird battle royale with my favourite, the lethal and awesome peregrine falcon. This week, my Armageddon amigo is Lev Perikian. Lev is a writer and orchestral conductor. He has written four books to date, including Why Do Birds Suddenly Disappear and Into the Tangled Bank?, His latest book, Music to Eat Cake By, is a collection of 40 essays on subjects given to him by readers, and he has shoehorned as much bird content into it as he could get away with. Music-wise, he cites conducting at Abbey Road Studios last year as a career highlight. Lev, great to see you again. Welcome to Golden Grenades. Thanks so much, Kit. It's brilliant to be invited onto this excellent project. I mentioned in the introduction there, Lev, that as part of your job as an orchestral conductor, you'd recorded at Abbey Road. That must have been an amazing experience. It was. It's one of those places that for, I think, any musician, whether you're um, classical, which is why I am, uh, or any field, it's one of those mythic places that, uh, because of the album and the, the album cover, is that when you, you know, if you get booked to play there or to work there, then you just go, oh. Abbey Road, that's brilliant. Um, and I had played there, I used to be an um, orchestral percussionist, so I'd, I'd played there a couple of times in the other studios, but um, on this occasion, I was asked to conduct something and uh, record it, and it was in the main studio. Yeah, so walking into that building, or even just walking along the street outside it, knowing you're going into that building, is uh, quite a magical thing. And then to stand there in a studio with an orchestra and all the microphones and all the palaver of a recording studio and to work with BBC Concert Orchestra and uh, it's always inspiring especially for you know conductors it's a, there's a lot of mystery if you don't know about conducting as to what exactly conductors do and I quite often wonder what I do as well um, because when you listen to really great musicians playing you think well they're doing it pretty much all themselves so just to be in the middle of it was uh, was quite enough for me. It was a yeah, memorable day. Obviously, you mentioned Abbey Road, the album, and the, the Beatles there. And it's well known that Paul McCartney is a birder, apparently. I mean, he wrote Blackbird. You know, understand that, it, yeah, he, he, he is partial to going out with his bins. Yeah, um, I'd read that as well. I hadn't, I only re- recently read that. Um, occasionally, you come across these articles that say, you know, famous birders. Um, yeah. I remember the American president, Jimmy Carter, was was uh, apparently uh, a very avid birder, and as was uh, Fidel Castro. <laughs> and you can imagine these kind of uh, day out they could have had uh, <laughs> <laughs> discussing yeah, the American-Cuba relations. But I was saying, oh, look, affiliated Woodpecker. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, they could have saved a lot of angst there, couldn't they? Yeah, imagine all the, the, pro- the world problems that birding could solve. Yeah, <laughs> brilliant. Um, well, yeah, I mean, coming back to Paul McCartney, I, I do uh, imagine that he's a Wader fan. I bet he loves a Wimbrel. You <laughs> think? I hadn't, I hadn't got as far as uh, thinking what specific birds he might like, but I, I think he would say Wimbrel with a very, uh, uh, with a lovely soft uh, inflection. 
So yeah, I think I you could, might be onto something there. These are the sorts of things that keep me awake at night. But <laughs> anyway, next time you're at Abbey Road, if you happen to see Paul, um, just just mention this podcast and I'll 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 get him on. Get yeah, no, on, that'd be brilliant, wouldn't it? <laughs> a, a year or two back, um, I think it was uh, yeah, 2019, wasn't it? Sometime there, you started a, an amazing thing on Twitter, um, the Twitter Birdsong Project. Tell us about that. Yeah, it's one of those things uh, that started out as uh, that I didn't have any idea how popular it would become. I'd, it was in February 2019, as you say, and I'd just been, it was a sunny day and I'd just been out for a walk and I'd heard a song thrush on top of a tree, really giving, as they do, you know, early early spring song thrush. It's one of those great things. The air is clear and uh, they're quite shouty. And it was at the top of a tree and I t- took a video of it with my phone and I put it up on Twitter and some people, you know, kind of really liked it. They say you got a few retweets and a few likes. And at the time, I mean, as with many of the, the last few years, there was a lot of anger in the air, I think, and a lot of you know, upset and worry about something or other. And I think I joined in with something a bit shouty on Twitter that day, as well as doing my usual stuff of just tweeting about birds mostly and stupid jokes. And uh, it just occurred to me that evening, it was a Saturday, and I'd had a, a glass of wine. And I thought, what well, what we need is something just to get people a little bit more mellow and a bit more engaged with uh, the natural world as well. Uh, and it just suddenly occurred to me that a cool thing to do would be to do something about birdsong to help people recognise it. And now I'm effectively a beginner slash intermediate birder you know i've come back to it after many many years away so i've only really been doing it for in all my life 10 years out of 55 uh, most of it condensed into the last five years uh, so I'm, i regard myself as the the guy who's got the how to play the banjo book but and is probably on the last chapter of volume one and my aim was to help people who have just bought the book and if they work really hard, they can overtake me and get ahead of this is a Billy Connolly story. He did it. He he bought a how to play the banjo book and he went to a teacher. And it turned out that the teacher was just three chapters ahead of him in the book. And so he practiced really hard. And three weeks later, he became the teacher. Yeah. So um, I regard myself as the, the original teacher in, in that that regard. There are so many people who are much more expert than me, but I think I what I brought to the table was a willingness to sit at my computer or on my phone every day and dig up a different bird and talk a little bit about how I recognise it. So I started with, I think it was the robin and then the blackbird and then the great tit. So all the, the, the most common ones that people are likely to hear. And of course, this is in February, a few weeks before everything was going to be starting up for the spring song season. Uh, and the original tweet was just, would, would anybody be interested in this? Um, and if nobody had said yes, I'd have done it anyway and probably fizzled out after a couple of weeks, as I tend to do. But it just took hold and got thousands and thousands of uh, retweets. And I gained thousands and thousands of followers overnight. And I sent a DM to a friend uh, uh, about half an hour in. I went, I'm going to have to do this now, aren't I? Because <laughs> all these people are following me on the back of this crazy idea. So every day for the next 12 weeks, I dug up from the Zenocanto archive, a link to a recording of a different bird and talked a little bit about that bird. And uh, yeah, it was great fun. And people seemed to, it was, what was really heartening about it is that so many people were interested in it and that they were 
walking around you know cocking an ear to things and noticing stuff for maybe the, for the first time yeah it was it truly was a, a wonderful thing and i i dipped in and out of it uh, regularly myself listening to to what you were saying and reading those tweets and i think at the time it was probably peak brexit angst as well and it was there was a lot of that sort of stuff going on and then obviously after that came came the lockdown and and we all know how people have sort of enjoyed their wild spaces as a result of that so i think it was a brilliant public service that you performed there, getting people preempted for for what was to come. Yeah, what was interesting was this year, because I did it again this year, and I kind of did the same tweets, and uh, people were interested. But this year, the beginning of lockdown, I got you probably got this as well. I got a lot of people asking me, saying, "Oh, have you noticed how loud the bird song is this year? It's much louder." And I thought, well, that's great. People, everybody's noticing it, but I don't think it is louder. I just think that the traffic was quieter. Yeah, um, and uh, I, th- I think people have done. There have been some studies, haven't there, saying that in certain birds might have been singing louder. But basically, it was because people were at home, where they weren't at home. They might have been at work before, and they were sitting around with nothing much to do except yeah. listen to bird song. I think you're a bit like me, Lev. You you sort of say something on Twitter, and then you're sort of compelled to go through with it. And I've done that numerous times as well, as you know. You know, yeah. saying would anybody like this on a T-shirt, and then having to four hundred <laughs> of the things. And you've done that as well, didn't you? You did this fabulous, jokey illustration of the trajectory of birds, you called it, and it was just some lines of birds flying across a page and the way birds fly in different ways. And what I particularly loved about that was cutting through all of them was the peregrine, which obviously is the inspiration for this podcast, taking out the wood pigeon, which was flying along the bottom. And then you put that on a T-shirt and did exactly the same thing that I've done. Well, again, it was that weird thing that... um an idea that came completely from no it's really weird how the, the brain works i was just kind of pottering around one morning and i'm not an artist at all but this this picture came into my head of the the bird flight and all the different you know the the one that i think about the most is probably uh green woodpecker has a kind of bouncing famously a kind of big bouncing flight yeah. boing 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 so you can just, you can show that with a with a line and then you look at little, the little birds like blue tits, which go beep, 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 quite long like that. And then the skylark does a, you know, the, the famous climbing up flight and then parachuting down. And this image just came into my head pretty much fully formed, as you say, with all these different sorts of lines going across the page. The skylark spiralling up through through them, but the dominant thing being this peregrine coming from the top and just going <laughs> into them. <laughs> Taking out the wood pigeon at the bottom. And again, it was it was Twitter such a kind of uh, weird thing. We do it we because uh, it's fun. It's a lovely way of connecting with people. But you also have these ideas, and you think, okay, this is going to be popular. And you put it out, and it gets three likes and one retweet. And you go, hmm, hmm, hmm. <laughs> but this one again, I thought, I don't, I don't know if people like this. And again, it just took off, and people kept on saying, this would look great on a t-shirt. Yeah. Oh, all right then. <laughs> um, and I've got, but yeah, you can do. I've got boxes of them in my office so that's uh, all good fun and you did a, you did a second t-shirt after that as well didn't you the songs of birds i did that one uh, felt it needed to a bit more work with the trajectories it, i literally scribbled it down and that was pretty much the finished article with the the songs of birds again these are sort of visual representations of um of bird song going across the page uh, at the bottom there's a bittern just going Ooh. 
and the 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 letters sort of peak in the middle of the word whom um and what else is there there's a sort of the 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 robin well the chaffinch is easy to do because it's run 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 bowl the ball you know like the the medium pace bowler as of of fame uh got parakeet on there the robin has a lovely sort of swirling like the robin song kind of silvery and fluting but the words um read something tell a bit of a different story about the robin's character <laughs> so that was good fun. Again, there's a sort of diagrammatic um, feel to it. No, yeah, it, it's, it's great. But what, one of the things about that actually is that the bird right at the top of that design is the first bird you're going to talk about today, the first of the five birds on your list. Bird number one. It is. It's the Goldcrest. Um, and the, the Goldcrest song, of course, is famously high, as, as if it's a very small bird. And... I transliterate it uh, as because it does have that kind of rhythm, doesn't it? When if you if you listen to it, it has that the the one that you'll probably hear first is the very high note of the first phrase, and then little gabble, and it quite often ends with a little scrabbly bit, doesn't it? The Goldcrest is the, the song is quite important to me because as we get older. We lose that range, that high hearing range that the Goldcrest song sits in, and so at some point in the future, I will uh, likely stop being able to hear the Goldcrest song. And so every time I hear one, I uh, I breathe a sigh of relief, you know, because oh, I can still hear it. That's great. I haven't reached that stage yet, but it's it's a lovely thing to hear because it's so thin, isn't it? That's that sound. Uh, thin and piping, and it makes you look into whatever conifer you happen to be passing, and then you can't see it because it's buried deep in the in the foliage and f- flitting around. Um, and then when they do come out and say hello, then that's a, a lovely a lovely moment. But they've always been an absolute favourite bird since my childhood, really. The stunning little birds, and like you say, the I think I remember Bilotti saying that about the call and, and that he recognised one day that he couldn't hear them anymore and it was the first one that, that dawned on him that, that his hearing was losing that upper frequency range. So it is, it is quite a poignant thing. It is. But- I, mean, I think for me, for me especially, there's, there is a, a childhood association because when I was a kid, I was uh, avid, avidly into my birds and I did a lot of my learning from big book. You're probably too young to remember this, Kit. But a big book called the Reader's Digest or AA Book of British Birds, which was published in the late 60s. So I was four or five when it came out, but we had a copy. And as I grew a little bit older, I was just leaf through it. And I would look at the illustrations, which were amazing, and the distribution maps, which were kind of, ooh, you know, find where you live and does that bird occur there? And uh, But also the statistics about birds and their sizes. So I quickly learned that the Goldcrest was not only Britain's smallest bird, but Europe's smallest bird, uh, along with its cousin, the Firecrest. And for me, that was very important because I was the smallest boy at my school. So I was a little titch. And uh, it... That there's something about being a small child that you feel, you know, it, it's you don't want that kind of notoriety. You want to be normal, and also you, you just feel almost less than other people. So I had that sense of solidarity with the Goldcrest because I was the smallest and it was the smallest. 
And then when I finally saw one in our in, in, in my village in Oxfordshire where I grew up, it came out, just popped out to say hello. That was a, a huge moment. And then coming back to birding 35 years later, having forgotten about it for many, many years, seeing my first, you know, consciously seeing a gold crest for the first time in 35 years was, uh, yeah, it was quite a, quite a moment for me, I'd say. I bet. And you, you've written about that in your first book, haven't you? Why do birds suddenly disappear? That's right. It was a pivotal moment in the early stages. The, that book's a story, really the story of my return to birding and the year 2016, where I set myself the task of, on my return, seeing 200 species of British bird in a year, which to the seasoned birders out there, they'll be going, pa, I get that by January the 15th. Um, but for somebody who really had difficulty distinguishing quite a lot, especially waders, and we're seeing these things for the very first time since the age of you know 13, then that it felt like a, a decent target to to go for. Um, so it's the story of that year, and the gold crest was yeah quite a quite a big thing. The thing I love about gold crests is the mythology attached to them that they used to get called woodcock pilots. I love that story that you know, they come they come over in autumn time at the same time as like woodcocks and short-eared owls and the first of the winter thrushes, you know, field fares and red wings. And it was believed for a long time that because they coincided with the, the drop of woodcock, that that somehow this tiny little bird couldn't possibly have got across the North Sea from Northern Europe. So it must have hitched a ride on a woodcock. So they were called woodcock pilots. You know, fantastic. that's just a, a fantastic image. And you know me, you know I love an animal perched atop another animal. <laughs> onward, um, onward. <laughs> onwards into hell. And uh, yeah, I just, I just love that sort of idea that they were they were woodcock pilots steering the way. Uh, yeah, it's a brilliant So I love that. There's something about the way people tried to explain natural phenomenon, isn't it? So, I mean, the whole migration thing, so swallows and swifts and as martins leaving. Uh, for, you know, for centuries, people couldn't, couldn't ex- either couldn't explain it or they thought that they, you know, they might have slept in the winter at the bottom of lakes. Or that they they turned into something else for the winter, and then when you learn the truth about these things, that's even more extraordinary. The idea that a a small bird is going to fly thousands of miles from Africa is almost more extraordinary than the idea of them sleeping at the bottom of lakes. (laughs) Yeah, absolutely. I think it is. I think once you start to get a a love of birds, it's the it's the looks and the the flying thing that hooks you in. But then when you start to learn more about migration and all the other things that birds do, I think that's when you really fall in love isn't it so moving swiftly on what is bird number two bird number two. 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 Oh, moving swiftly on i see what you did there um because the second bird it is very fast moving and it is swift of course and i reckon i don't know i don't know what uh, anybody else might have said in this podcast but if you don't have a swift in the top five birds, then honestly, I don't don't know what the hell you're doing, frankly, because they're just they're just extraordinary. I could just I'll just say they're just extraordinary. That's it. We're I think part of it for me is that we're very lucky we have them nesting. Uh, I live in South London, so uh, we don't get swallows um, except on migration, October especially. We don't get house martins. We don't. Get, I have to travel obviously to get see sand martins. But we have swifts nesting in the eaves uh, of houses on either side of us. Our eaves were uh, before we moved; they were they'd been built over. So the, you know, the modern b- building habit, which is not good for birds like that, 
Um, but we did put up a swift box, which they resolutely ignore. <laughs> uh-huh. Because it's too, it's like, you know, oh, gleaming new home. We're not going to do, we want this scubby old bit of, you know, crevice um, that we can wriggle into. So we do get them, and I wait for their arrival at the beginning of May every year with ridiculous, childish excitement. And when they arrive, I've been known to run from the up and down the house shouting, they're here, they're here. It's everything about them, isn't it? I think what it distills down to is they feel like they've come in from a different world, almost. Uh, and especially the fact that sometimes they will just appear in the sky where there where there wasn't a bird before, and suddenly, oh, there they are! It's like they've come in from through a portal somewhere, um, <laughs> and they're, they're you know they're gonna, that's where they're going to go back to. It's the flying, it's the the squee sound. Uh, it's the the life in the air holds such mystery for us, and it's just they're they're so charismatic. Uh, even when you just get a little glimpse of them wriggling around like little punctuation marks in the sky, they just there's a there's a touch of magic to them. Partly maybe because they're around for such a short space of time, I think that might contribute to it as well. So it just feels like a a, a short window to to enjoy them. Totally. I, I feel exactly the same about swifts. You know, it's that the hundred day bird, isn't it? it? It's here for such a short time. You anticipate them. You have a little bit of a heavy heart when you, you realize that you saw your last, your last one last week and they've yeah. gone and, and they're, they're just incredible. It's the whole, they look amazing. Their wings, you know, the fact that they don't stop flying, they come, they migrate. They've been around wild animals in Africa and then they come over here. They're, they're, they're just an incredible bird. And, and, you know, the mythology around them and everything about them. One of my favorite old names for them is the the devil bird. Mm. And I love that. And I knocked that up as a t-shirt actually. Yeah. yeah. I, I, I did it as um, yeah, a, a Pentagon to make it particularly <laughs> satanic um, Swift's, Swift's uh, silhouettes into a Pentagon. Yeah. It, it wasn't very popular, um, but yeah, no, they're, they're, they're incredible birds. And I, I too put up a box. Well, two boxes actually just this year, probably too late in the season, but I've been playing the call out the window yeah. um, in the hopes that when they come next year, they might remember and, and fingers crossed, but yeah, amazing birds. And you mentioned there about all birders probably have them in their top five. I'd hope so. I almost had a panicky moment three or four years ago. I switched the TV on and Back to the Future was on. Mm. And I just got sucked in because it's a great film. And I started yeah. watching it. And, you know, every time I do, you know, there's Back to the Future, you just get, ah, oh, here we go. I'll watch a bit of this. And before you know, you've watched the whole thing. And I had this moment as I was watching Back to the Future for the umpteenth time. I was like, wait, wait, wait a minute. Is, is Back to the Future my favorite film? I think it might be my favorite film. And I, I, it really surprised me because I'd never thought about it before. And I realized it was probably my favorite film. And I had the same thing shortly afterwards when I was watching Swifts in Spain. And they were just doing that thing where they go low down cobbled streets like a pack of TIE fighters screaming, you know, you don't get to see that so much over here. But And I was watching them and I just it just struck me. I was looking at them. I was going, hang on a minute. Are Swifts my favorite bird? I think they might be my favorite bird. And I got a bit panicky because it was like, no, 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 your favorite bird's a peregrine, don't be. And I was like, these, they're amazing. You know, and, uh, yeah, I, I got a bit nervous about it. Um, well, I had a, sim- I had a similar feeling, actually, um, 
when when you asked me to do this list, I had about fifty on the list to start with. I had to you know mournfully cross through names. Yeah, sorry, Pinkfooted Goose. No, sorry, Jay. Sorry, Bitten. Oh God, you poor things. Um, but I th- I had a similar feeling about Favorite Bird actually with with the third bird on my list, which we'll come to in a minute. But um, to, talking about the Swifts uh, that fly past, we get them sometimes because we've got a. Uh, my office on the first floor and this year more than ever we had more swifts than ever so we had three at least three pairs breeding but i think that some of the other ones in the in the locality came in for swift for screaming parties um in the evenings so we had you know 20 or 30 flying around which these days is a lot oh yeah it seemed to me as if they were doing even lower sorties than than I'd seen before, and they did on occasions come literally, uh, as in my office on the first floor, at head height, close to the window, and it's just breathtaking to, oh, to be that close to be that close to anything, even for a, a fraction of a second because they're gone so quickly. But um, uh, so yeah, it's magic. Great, great birds. So you mentioned your third choice there. So tell us about that. Bird number three. three. <laughs> So the third choice is a bird that I came across and I probably wouldn't necessarily have come across if it hadn't been for the book I had most recently published about nature in general, Into the Tangled Bank, um, which is, uh, it's a journey through Britain looking at nature and the way where the way humans relate to it. So it's not just birds, although I do gravitate towards them, um, but it's mostly on the premise that we are part of nature um, rather than it being something separate from us that we look at so that we are part of it. And I found, actually, while I was writing Why Do Birds Suddenly Disappear, I was found watching the humans I met uh, in its own way as fascinating as watching the birds I met, especially, you know, birders are an interesting tribe, but also members of the general public. So this was the subject of this book. Um, And in the writing of it, I travelled around the country and to give the journey a, a bit of shape, I w- tried to weave in the, the lives of some of the famous naturalists who have spent their lives uh, looking at uh, wildlife, including Ronald Lockley, who was the founder of the uh, Britain's first bird observatory. Um, and so this is really just an excuse to spend a week on Skokum Island off Pembrokeshire, which is bird observatory... It's a little island, yeah, it's about a mile long and a half mile wide. At any one time, you'll have no more than maybe a dozen humans living on it, but a couple of hundred thousand seabirds. So I spent a week there in last August. And one of the most magical moments for me was to be present at the ringing of storm petrels and to hold a storm petrel in my hand and release it. So again, I know for a lot of people who might be, you know, who are more experienced and more worldly in these things than I am, holding a bird in the hand might be a kind of part of their job and everyday experience. But to do it for the first time, to have that close, intimate contact with something, and especially something as extraordinary as a storm petrel. The first time I heard the word storm petrel, actually, it wasn't storm petrel, it was stormy petrel. 
and it was in the Monty Python sketch, the Albatross sketch, Dormy Petrol on a Stick. And it became <laughs> something ridiculous. You know, in my family, we'd go to the seaside, you know, what, what would you like, a 99 or a, a Magnum or a, or a Stormy Petrol on a Stick? <laughs> just one of those things that you just kind of, it's part of the vocabulary. <laughs> so to hold a Storm Petrol, not on a stick. <laughs> Again, connections with childhood, I guess. Brilliant. Did you get to hear them uh, in their burrows? Yeah. Well, of course, to, for the for the ringing nights there, they they would play the recordings from the harbour to get them in, and then they'd bring them up for, for ringing. But I did hear the the, the sounds in the burrows as well, which is yeah, it's extraordinary. It's described, isn't it? It's like like a fairy being sick. <laughs> I've read that actually, like a fairy being sick. I mean, that's that's incredible. <laughs> but it is again it's like the swift it's got that otherworldly quality and i think i didn't realize because looking at it in field guides and in the, the the book of british birds that i grew up with it didn't occur to me quite how small they were yeah in my head they were bigger than that but they're titty little things, aren't they? And again, you just think about how they can their their element is different to ours. So our element is very much the land. And for all birds, they're in their element when they're in the air, to a greater or lesser extent. But for storm petrels and all those other amazing seabirds, it's the sea. It's they spend their lives in a place that we just don't know about, really. You know, we make visits to it and some people spend time there but it's just this it's a mysterious thing again which i find very alluring yeah and there's all the the mythology and the superstitions about them and yeah. i think thing about being associated with rough seas the way they sort of hover above the waves and dangle their toes in and yeah. and i think they've you know almost for sailors in the past became a, a superstition didn't they that that they would they represented the lost souls of sailors who'd been lost at sea or the souls of wicked sea captains who were doomed to roam around on the choppy waves for all eternity you know all of these sort of folklore tales that were associated with them you can see how those stories would have sprung up can't you you can understand yeah. how, you know, um, spending time in that element and seeing them and quite often they might have come from uh, through a mist or from almost from from nowhere and as you say to see them doing the, the pattering thing on the water yeah, uh, it's just a, it must have felt like you know, some uh, miraculous creation. Yeah, great birds, and I'm I like you. I'm a petrol head too. <laughs> so far, you've chosen small, almost delicate birds, but your next choice firmly rebalances the scales. I think bird number four. It is so. I've gone from our smallest passerine to our largest passerine, which is uh, the raven. I, I couldn't have a list of five without having a COVID. And then you just go, as you say, what's your favourite film? I don't know. But you just go, well, obviously the Jackdaw is my favourite COVID. Oh, and I hold on, though. <laughs> the Rook's my favourite. No, but hang on, though. Obviously the Carrying Crows. No, obviously the Jay is my favourite. Oh, but there's a Chuffer. So I decided to just uh, cut through the crap and go for the biggest one. But also the one that, again, it's to do, I think it's to do with mystery because carrying crows to me are very everyday birds and I see them and they're great and I wouldn't be without them. And likewise, jackdaws and magpies and rooks, all of them, 
but ravens have that again it's mythology isn't it all crows are kind of birds of death but the ravens are they are the ones they're on the the, the right hand the right hand of Wotan and they're uh, you know they are uh, what was that Hugin and Moonin are the, the their names and they feel they feel like if they hadn't if they hadn't existed Terry Pratchett would have written them absolutely <laughs> or Neil Gaiman one of the two both. Terry Pratchett would have yeah. got there first I'm sure yeah one each one each um <laughs> And because not obviously there's that whole they're huge and spooky and extraordinary mythical creatures, but they're also great fun. If you see a raven tumbling through the air, you think, well, he's just it's just having fun, isn't it? It's just enjoying life. And then the, there's the variety of the vocalizations they have. Everyone's familiar with the the gronk kind of sound, right? I can't do it, but you know, uh, from over the edge of the cliff, you hear it, and you go, oh, oh, "Where are you looking over the edge of a cliff for it?" But they have an extraordinary range of sounds if you delve into it, don't they? They're amazing, and you know, there has been lots of examples of ravens that could talk. They were quite often a pet in older times, weren't they? Charles Dickens had a couple, and yeah. obviously, there's the Tower of London. They have ravens there, and I think they have had birds. In the Tower of London, relatively recently, they could talk, chat. Yeah, on. well, I know that the, the the there was that book last couple of years ago, wasn't there, by the the, the, the Raven Master at yeah. Tower of London, talking about how they are. You know, they there is his friends and his family now, and they are incredibly playful and um, and intelligent, and they tell him all sorts of things just by the way they are. That's another part of it, which is they're part of our our country's history. There's a mm. myth that you know, if the Ravens leave the Tower of London then the empire will fall or whatever. And when, you know, it becomes a tabloid tabloid story when one, one of the ravens dies. They go, oh, <laughs> my God, we're a step closer to uh, collapse. Uh. I think you know, that's superstitious third, isn't it? It's it, it, all of the, yeah. the history that goes with them and the fact that they, you know, more than any other bird are associated with death, like you say, and actually not just associated with death, but they used to clean up battlefields and yeah. nooses and, you know, they were protected in some places, I think, in the past because they cleaned up cities of detritus and, well, yeah. towns, you know, in, in the olden days. So, yeah, everything has a it's useful place in the ecosystem, I suppose. Yeah. And I think, again, just to mention my first encounter with them, which was about halfway through the year of 2016 when I was writing Why the Birds suddenly disappeared and I'd gone down to Portland and I got up early well early for me and as dawn rose there was this fog coming in off the sea shrouding pretty much everything except the lighthouse at Portland which was sticking up so I saw the top half of the lighthouse I'm showing with my hands on a podcast the top half of the lighthouse um <laughs> this is a red and white thing and so you had the ground shrouded in mist then the mist goes up and then you just see this red and white thing suspended in the air and in one of the fields, I heard the gronk and I looked across and there were these two ravens in the mist, early morning, looking every bit as if they were about to come and have my, you know, have my head on toast. <laughs> so it's one of those you know, encounters you, you just remember. Yeah, great, slightly menacing, spooky birds. And, the, and your final choice is, is another creepy bird. Bird number five. <laughs> so I've gone from this I've gone from the cute and adorable to the oh my god it's going to come and get us. Um yeah it's 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 the barn owl and again I made my list I looked at it and I thought there's something 
something not right about this list. And I realised there wasn't an owl on it. And you can't have a list of five birds without an owl on it, frankly. Um, so it's the barn owl. And I, I had to think which one it would be. But I suppose it is that ghostly thing, isn't it? The, the barn owls have the silence, the face, and uh, above all, that ghastly shriek they do. which just comes, it strikes fear directly into your heart. Do not pass go, do not collect £200. It's just straight there, that that disembodied shriek um, that just says that somebody somewhere is having their fingernails ripped out. Um, <laughs> uh, <clears throat> so it's just that they're great. And it's the whiteness as well. I mean, when you watch a barn owl at dusk, there's sometimes the light is such that they just have this glow to them, don't they? Everything around them is gloomy, but you see this gently flapping thing just going quite silently over the fields and just doing its thing. That glow, apparently, sometimes some birds, when they nest in holes in trees, there might be a certain type of fungi that can live in the trees and that can coat their feathers that's phosphorescent. So actually, there is this theory that although they look like they're glowing, they actually might be. <laughs> well, that's even better. I didn't know that. Uh, that's even better then. Isn't it? Isn't it? <laughs> so they go, they've just gone up. I think they've gone ahead of ravens now because uh, of that. They literally glow. I mean, yeah. It's, yeah. Also, it's also they've got magic feathers, haven't they? They've got magic feathers in their wings, which, which make them silent. Uh, I'm sure somebody who's more scientific bent will be able to explain exactly what it is, but they, and I can't remember the word now, but they just, the, the air goes through them so that they don't make any noise. And so that that shrew or vole doesn't know what's about to hit it. I think they're just called magic feathers, Lev. They're just, they're called magic feathers. Yeah, Excellent. magic glowing feathers. Yeah. <laughs> amazing, amazing birds and a, and, a, and a great choice. And that, that spookiness to them, you know, the fact that in the past people just used to, hear that noise and think of goblins or ghosts or somebody having their fingernails ripped out you know the, the, the sorry to make it so explicit on this this family show <laughs> they are magical at any time of day and especially if you're driving along a deserted country road uh, late at night and your headlights pick out a barn owl that is one thing but i think the most magical sightings are those early morning ones over a frosty field so if you're up nice and early and it's you know, the sun's just come up and so you're in daylight and then you just catch a glimpse of one. Just it's, uh, again, it's a glimpse into another world, isn't it? Well, five cracking choices there, Lev. I, I can't argue with any of them, but the time has come. We can avoid it no longer. As we know, all birds are not equal and some are simply superior to others. Nobody has ever lightly soiled their crag hoppers at the sight of a perfectly adequate chaffinch. So you must choose your absolute favourite of these awesome and frankly quite spooky birds to enter the avian Armageddon arena, where two birds will battle it out for the title of greatest bird of all. Greatest out of Levin Kitt's favourites anyway. <laughs> so which one is it going to be? Oh dear, it's, well, it's impossible, isn't it? There are all sorts of reasons why I could choose any of them. And when people ask me what my favourite bird is, I quite often say goldcrest, simply because of my own personal associations with them. Because I think the other thing about goldcrest is that they are commoner than you think. 
I think a lot of people go, oh, God, I'd love to see a Gold Coast. I've never seen one. So, well, honestly, they're around all over the place, but you just, they just can be a little bit elusive. So there's that, the kind of hiding in plain sight thing. But uh, I would have to, if, I, if you actually tied me down and tickled me with a feather, I would have to say the Swift is of those five. The Swift is the one, the one for me. It's the most magical. It's the, it's the one that gives me the, the thrill every year. Beat that! <laughs> oh, pick pick the gold crest, Lev. Don't don't pick that, Peregrine. <laughs> oh man, you know Peregrine's getting a drubbing in this podcast, and I'm I'm starting to realise that you know I might have set myself a, an impossible task here. But you've picked Swift, and as as I mentioned earlier, there's that whole thing that I've got going on in my head that actually. Actually, Swift might be my favourite bird. Oh, I don't so, I've, so basically, I've just said you've had in your head. I mean, you've got probably The Godfather as your favourite film, and then I've come along with Back to the Future. Oh, no. <laughs> you literally have. And it, you know, as, as torn as I am, as, as, and as much as I love Peregrines and everything about them, Swifts are awesome. Swifts oh. are possibly. Possibly, I'm not going to admit it, but well, let's let's not let's not make an absolute decision, shall we? Should we just leave it? I'm not going to make it. I have to make a decision for this podcast because that's the rule I've set myself. But I'm not going to absolutely say it's the best bird ever in the world. But I think for today, it is. Swift, yeah. Swift rule. <laughs> we, win. we win. I'll tell them when they get back. <laughs> it's been an absolute pleasure my friend and thank you for being my podcast partner today so tell me what what plans have you got in the pipeline well at the moment as we record we're at the beginning of december um end of 2020 and i as a working conductor i have worked for about eight weeks this year which is not good because of the pandemic with so with any luck i'll be able to get back to doing that as a, as a you know a daily thing in 2021 with orchestras being able to meet again. But I suppose if there's no good time to have a pandemic, but uh, when you've got to write a book and hand it in by the beginning of next February, then that's probably a good time to have a pandemic. So I've been able to concentrate on the book I'm writing at the moment, which doesn't yet have a title, but it's uh, it's basically a year on my patch in South London, seen through the lens of the Japanese micro seasons, which I'm sure you're familiar with. Uh, the old way, the traditional Japanese calendar, dividing the year into 72 five-day chunks. So uh, it's going to be 72 short chapters, each one describing what happened on my very urban, suburban patch. So that's been great fun and kept me interested. Why do birds suddenly disappear is out in paperback at the beginning of next year in February. And I think Into the Tangled Bank is also out um, in paperback next year. So there's all good sorts of good things happening book-wise. Um, and with any luck with music and writing and the birds, I'll keep myself busy for, a, with any luck, a, a more prosperous 2021 for everybody. Absolutely, Lev. I think we can all hope for that. Well, that's all we have time for this week, folks. Thanks very much for tuning in. Do join me again next week when my special guest will be the biologist and writer and river fan, Amy Jane Beer. Until then, bye for now.